Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. We are so pleased to welcome back Emmy Award-winning producer and instructor of journalism in the Department of Cinema, Television, and Media at Belmont University, where this week's final presidential debate will be held. Prior to her work with Belmont, Jen was the White House producer for ABC News. She was also the producer for CNN's Anderson Cooper 360, as well as a producer for Katie Couric's syndicated show in New York. Uh, She also worked for the Oprah Winfrey Network in Los Angeles, and Jen's been a consultant for Words Matter with us on and off since our launch in August of 2018. Jen, welcome back to Words Matter. Thanks for having me, Katie. This has been fun. So to our listeners, this week we're going to do something a little different, and um, I'm only slightly terrified of it, but I'm going to step back from my hosting duties and let Jen take the lead in asking the questions. Yeah, and this this happened pretty organically. So in my previous life as a full-time journalist, I was glued to the TV as hearings would happen live. But now that I teach at a university full-time, I have to break away and catch what I can when I can, which I think is what a lot of people outside the Beltway do because they have day jobs, and sometimes we forget that. So basically, I kept texting you, Katie, all week, and you were live blogging from the Supreme Court hearing, and I kept saying, hey, hey, what's going on? What's going on? (laughs) And I thought, we should do this for our listeners, right? I mean, there are a lot of people like me who didn't catch every second, and you've been in the thick of it. All this said, I think it's important to reiterate your training and experience as a lawyer. So, Katie, you've been live blogging for SCOTUS blog, and your focus as a journalist on the intersection between law and politics is really important here, and in particular, your focus on the Supreme Court and how you can break this all down for us. So, thank you for letting me ask the questions on Words Matter this week. So let's dig right in and talk about last week's Senate Judiciary confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. In general, the Republican members of the committee were pretty supportive of Judge Barrett, and the Democratic members, well, a little less so. So the Affordable Care Act and the legal challenges, both past and future, were a big focus of the Democratic senators. Let's listen to this exchange between Judge Barrett and Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois. So give us an insight how you can be so unequivocal in opposing the majority decisions in NFIB Sibelius and in King and Burwell, but have an open mind when it comes to the future of the Affordable Care Act? Sure. Thank you for that question, Senator Durbin, because it gives me an opportunity to make my position clear. Um, When I wrote, and this was as a law professor, about those decisions, I did critique the statutory interpretation of the majority opinions. And as I mentioned before, my description of them was consistent with the way that Chief Justice Roberts described the statutory question. But I think that your concern is that because I critiqued the statutory reasoning that I'm hostile to the ACA, and that because I'm hostile to the ACA that I would decide a case a particular way. And I assure you that I am not. I'm not hostile to the ACA. I'm not hostile to any statute that you pass. And the 
cases on which I commented, and, and we can talk at another time, I guess, about the context, the distinctions between academic writing and judicial decision making, but those were on entirely different issues. So to assume that because I critiqued the interpretation of the mandate or the phrase established by a state means that on the entirely different legal question of severability, I would reach a particular result just assumes that I'm hostile, and that's not the case. I apply the law, I follow the law, you make the policy. So, Katie, for those of us who are not lawyers, can you explain the issue, what Judge Barrett has written and said on this topic, and why Democrats seem to focus so much on this one topic? Yes. So that's three different questions. And I'm not a politician or a political expert, but in my layman opinion, the reason the Democrats focused on the Affordable Care Act, it was because it was politically beneficial to them. And it was really the only card they had to play. They don't have the votes. It's clear that she's going to get confirmed. So it seemed like they were just pivoting to the voters, saying, this is what her confirmation will mean for your daily lives. And each of them had a picture each day, a different picture of a constituent from their home state who benefited from the ACA or whose life was radically changed or helped because of the Affordable Care Act. So they kind of made it their center message. And on the very first day, were uncharacteristically regimented and kind of sticking to the message. Democrats aren't necessarily known for doing that particularly well. What Dick Durbin was talking about in that clip is the the case that's coming up before the Supreme Court on November 10th. And the court decided to take this case when Justice Ginsburg was still on the bench. So I suspect she may have been one of the votes to hear that case. It's come up before the court six times in the past seven years in different capacities. And I think the court just really wanted to put the final nail in the coffin and say, you know, this is the law of the land. Obviously, things have changed. Justice Ginsburg passed away, and now there will be a Judge Barrett on the bench. But what's interesting is there's really going to be two issues before the court. Is this law, the Affordable Care Act, constitutional? And then this piece of the law is really the question of whether it's constitutional. It's called the individual mandate. And that's where you as a citizen got penalized if you didn't get health care. You had to pay money if you decided not to get health care. And the Supreme Court upheld that as constitutional back in 2010. They said, that's a tax because that money goes to the IRS. So this is constitutional. Everything's copacetic. The law can exist. And John Roberts wrote that opinion. Conservatives got really upset with Roberts when that happened. But that's how it happened. It was a 5-4 opinion. Then it came up in various iterations, and they kept upholding the law. But then Republicans zeroed out that tax. They basically made it non-existent. It's non-functional. It's no longer—it's zero dollars. It's still in the law, but it's zero dollars. So if you don't get health care, you pay zero dollars. So the question that's coming before the court this term is, now that that's been zeroed out— is the law still constitutional? Because the whole thing hinged on the fact that this was a this was a tax, right? That's what John Roberts said. This is why this law was constitutional, because this was a tax. And then if it's unconstitutional because it's zero dollars now and it's no longer a tax, does the whole law fall or does just that one piece of the law come out? And what was so interesting about Judge Barrett is she just bypassed that whole first part of the conversation. She just went straight to whether or not if it's unconstitutional, does the whole law fall or not? And that part of the conversation is called severability. You heard Dick Durbin talking about it. Whether you can sever the $0 piece 
or whether the whole law has to fall. And she kept skipping straight to severability, which was interesting because she's just bypassing this whole issue of whether it's constitutional or not, which suggests to me that she thinks that it's unconstitutional. And an important point that came out in the hearings, too, is she actually did a moot court for a law school last month or a couple of months ago on this case. They mooted this case. She was one of the judges on the bench, and she ruled. She issued her opinion, and her opinion was the law is unconstitutional, but it's severed. So the rest of the law stays, but you just take out the $0 penalty. They asked her about that in the confirmation hearing. She said, well, yes, that's how I ruled, but please don't read into that. That's not necessarily how I would necessarily rule. I would have to look at everything. But I think that was a pretty big hint on what's going to happen to the Affordable Care Act. I also think Lindsey Graham kind of hung his hat on that at the end when he said, look, you know, she's talking about severability. This is how she ruled in this moot court. I think the Republicans were trying to stave off that Democratic attack point by saying, I don't think she's going to strike it down. And if you ask my personal opinion, I think the Affordable Care Act is is also going to remain, not just because of her, but some of the other justices on the bench. But that's kind of where Durbin was going. That's the lay of the land of, of what the Democrats are arguing is at stake here. But we'll see. Yeah. And it's such a complicated issue. You broke it down so well, because I think healthcare, you know, we we try to dive into these waters and try to understand. But knowing how she's ruled on it in the past is is obviously very important. Now, you brought up Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so I want to touch on that for a minute. Judge Barrett would obviously be filling her seat that has been held since 1993 by Justice Ginsburg. And the issue of reproductive rights in general, and specifically questions about Roe versus Wade, were a big focus at these hearings as well. Let's listen to Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from Michigan. These are babies that are wanted. Uh, This is something that uh, a family looks forward to. And then a pregnancy goes bad uh, and uh, medical treatment isn't provided uh, because someone is making a decision not based on on medicine, not best best medical practice, uh, but uh, politics. Uh, And that's simply uh, unacceptable. And uh, right now, when we're in the midst of a debate for a new Supreme Court justice, they may overrule Roe versus Wade, this is going to become a bigger issue for families uh, for for a long time. It's, it's important for these stories uh, to be told. And these are decisions that need to be made by a woman. They are incredibly difficult, uh, hard, hard decisions. They need to be made with uh, the advice of a physician and the medical advice and, and folks that uh, the, the woman may want to bring into that, uh, into that uh, decision. But to have it second-guessed by a hospital board who is bound by some sort of politics, we were fortunate. We knew someone who could get the, uh, uh, her into, a Heidi, into a, uh, the, actually the department head for uh, OBGYN who, who could look at her. And he said, immediately, we have to do this uh, action. This is very, very serious. There are a lot of families that may not have and don't have that option. And it puts uh, folks in serious medical harm. So let's talk about this, given Judge Barrett's stated views on reproductive rights. So a couple of things. First of all, we all know that Judge Barrett is pro-life and apparently adamantly so. She's participated with groups and signed her name to publications and advertisements that are adamantly pro-life. She is a member of the Catholic Church, also pro-life, and that she said numerous times during the hearing, she believes that life begins from conception to natural death. That's that's what life means. But her argument or her statements in the hearing were that her job as a, a judge is wholly separate and apart from her personal beliefs and that 
Her job will not be to apply her personal beliefs, but to look at the law and apply the law as it's written. That's how she thinks of it. What the Democrats are concerned about and and what could happen is not necessarily that Roe get overturned, although that's certainly been a talking point, but that it gets effectively gutted by the Supreme Court slowly chipping away at Roe. And what does that mean to chip away at Roe? There was a case this last term about a Louisiana abortion law that said doctors at abortion clinics have to have admitting privileges at the local hospital. And that can get political, how you get admitting privileges and all of the requirements and hoops you have to jump through and and if they want to admit you or not. And it would have effectively meant that there were no abortion clinics in Louisiana. And so they took it up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court struck it down, not because it's in keeping with Roe, but because four years ago— they decided a case that was exactly the same, but in Texas. Texas had passed a similar law saying doctors at abortion clinics have to have admitting privileges or they can't have the abortion clinic. And that was called Whole Women's Health. And and the court then, with Kennedy on the bench, struck it down. Roberts dissented in 2016. But the key was Roberts flipped his vote this past year because the court had already decided the issue. So he was Mm. he was looking to what's called stare decisis or let the decision stand, which is this idea that came up at the hearing. It means when the court puts forth a precedent, it follows its own precedent for the most part. There are exceptions. We can talk about that later. So Roberts flipped his vote. But in his opinion, he wrote, I still think that this case was originally wrong. Roberts is anti-abortion personally. He is not in favor of abortion. But he flipped his vote and and allowed that law got struck down. But I think with an Amy Coney Barrett on the bench, that may change and it may be 5-4 the other way. Upholding these types of laws that don't say you no longer have the right to choose, you no longer have the right to abortion, but they make it nearly impossible for a woman in Texas or a woman in Louisiana to be able to even get to an abortion clinic. Yeah, and I think that was Senator Peter's point. I mean, he had this personal experience, and he was the first senator to come out and share his personal experience. So it was really interesting to hear that. I want to stay on Roe versus Wade because there are a lot of one-issue voters out there that just vote on this issue. So let's listen to Senator Amy Klobuchar's exchange with Judge Barrett on that landmark 1973 case. Is Roe a super precedent? How would you define super precedent? I, I, I actually, I might have thought someday I'd be sitting in that chair. I'm not. I'm up here, so I'm asking okay, you. Okay, well, people so. use super precedent differently. Okay. The way that it's used in the scholarship and the way that I was using it in the article that you're reading from was to define cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling. And I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category. And scholars across the spectrum say that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. But descriptively, it does mean that it's not a case that everyone has accepted and doesn't call for its overruling. All right, Katie, can you explain what a super precedent is and how Judge Barrett used it in the hearings and in her previous writings, and how that applies to Roe. So I feel like some of these questions are even more challenging than the ones Barrett got. I also feel like I should have studied harder. (laughs) Um, So forgive me, because it's been a minute since I've been in law school. But this concept, quote, super precedent, is not in the Constitution. It's not in the Supreme Court language. It is a made-up concept by scholars. It 
first came about from then-professor, who eventually became a judge, Richard Posner, but kind of like as a throwaway term. It was jargon. And then later in 2000, Judge Michael Luddig of the Fourth Circuit started using superstare decisis, which is what I just said. They're, they're kind of similar terms. And that started to gain a following, super precedent, super duper precedent. And the idea is there are these cases that are so entrenched and locked into our doctrine and our country's understanding and psyche that no reasonable person would ever talk about overturning them. And the cases she she said a couple of times throughout the hearing were Marbury versus Madison, which is the fact that the Supreme Court has judicial review. They can look at the Constitution and interpret the federal law. And Brown v. Board of Education, which outlawed segregation in the states and in schools for children or overturned segregation-related laws. So she admitted that there were certain, quote, super precedents, but this is not, I mean, this is a term that scholars came up with. This is not anything that you can really hang your hat on constitutionally. And I think there was some misconception about that, and I'm sure it will continue to be a, a hotly used term and relied upon term, but it doesn't really exist. And it's open for interpretation what is and is not a, a super precedent, and, and they spend a lot of time talking about that. Well, I'm just going to say as a professor, I think you passed the test because Thank you. I, I understand the super precedent now. So. <laughs> well, I guess what's notable is the things that she said were not super precedent. So things like Griswold v. Connecticut, protecting birth control, access to contraceptive care, and Obergefell, which is the gay marriage opinion that came out a couple of years ago. So those those in her mind are not super precedents, which I think is perhaps more noteworthy than what is. And Roe v. Wade is not. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I want to get to Obergefell in a minute. But first, I want to talk about something else that was brought up in the hearing that really struck me. So it was the integrity of the current presidential election, right, the 2020 election. And it's been pointed out that just like in the 2000 election with Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court may end up deciding major issues in the race for the White House. And something that I learned just this week was that Judge Barrett actually worked on the Bush v. Gore case in 2000 for George W. Bush's team, as did Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh. Is that a big deal or not really? So not really. I mean, I think any number of conservative judges or the conservative legal elite probably got their starts and certainly earned legal chops working on a landmark historic case like Bush v. Gore. I don't think it matters at all. I do think we are likely to see an election-related litigation. We already are. At SCOTUS Blog, we've been covering election-related litigation throughout the summer. All of these states are trying to, to figure out how to cope with COVID and trying to make it easier for their vulnerable and senior citizens to vote without having to be physically in person. A lot of states have really strict absentee voting laws, like you need to have two witnesses present or you need to get it certified before you send it in. So states are trying to relax some of those restrictions. But political parties are getting involved in challenging what the states are doing, and it's making its way up to the Supreme Court. So I think it's very likely we'll see some sort of COVID-related, election-related litigation. I don't think we'll have any hanging chads this go around. I don't think so. Yeah, that's really important. I've seen a lot of articles bringing that up. I want to just listen to what Judge Barrett had to say overall on this topic. President repeatedly declares his, he needs his nominee as a way of securing his re-election. And that nominee is then ran through the Senate uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the middle of that election. 
what you can see with the nominees and partiality may be question. So um, my my request is in that, in protecting confidence of both you and the court. Are you able to commit to recuse yourself from disputes that arise out of the 2020 presidential election? Senator Leahy, I commit to you to fully and faithfully applying the law of recusal. And part of that law is to consider um, any appearance questions. And I will apply the factors that other justices have before me in determining whether the circumstances require my recusal or not. But I can't offer a legal conclusion right now about the outcome of the decision I would reach. So, Katie, what are the rules of recusal and who ultimately makes that decision in Supreme Court cases? So the recusal rules are there aren't really rules. There are suggestions and processes for how you figure out if you should recuse, but it is ultimately up to the individual justice to decide whether or not to recuse. Nobody can make them recuse. Nobody can make them not recuse. It's up to the individual justice. And we see recusals not infrequently at the court. Justice Kagan actually recuses more than any other justice because of her work with the Obama administration. She was a solicitor general under Obama. The solicitor general, which I was recently reminded, is sometimes referred to as the 10th justice. They are the government, the administration's lawyer. They represent the administration on everything that comes before the court. So, for example, when DACA came up before the court this past term or when the Affordable Care Act was originally argued, you know, the Obama administration had to defend the Affordable Care Act. And so the Solicitor General represents the government's interests on behalf of the Department of Justice and the entire administration when they have cases that come up before the Supreme Court. And the recusals come from family ties, a stock ownership. If a judge owns stock in any corporate entity, they won't hear, likely won't hear a case that involves that company. Sometimes justices are named in a case as defendants, and then they recuse themselves. Uh, Kavanaugh sat on the D.C. Circuit a hugely important court called the second most important court in the land for 10 years. And so he was on some big panels that made their way up to the Supreme Court over the past couple of years. And he's had to recuse from those too. But it's going to be up to her if she recuses from anything, if at all. Another related and important topic, which may reach the court over the next few months or a few weeks, is that of voting rights and particularly voter suppression. So let's again listen to Senator Amy Klobuchar and Judge Barrett on this issue. So in Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby, uh, where a 5-4 court struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, she described the right to vote as a fundamental right in our democratic system. She also wrote in her dissent that the Constitution uses the words right to vote in five separate places, the 14th, 15th, 19th, 24th, and 26th Amendments. Each of these amendments, this is still her talking, not me, each of these amendments contains the same broad empowerment of Congress to enact appropriate legislation to enforce the protected right. The implication is unmistakable. Under our constitutional structure, Congress holds the lead reign in making the right to vote equally real for all U.S. citizens. Do you agree with Justice Ginsburg's conclusion that the Constitution clearly empowers Congress to protect the right to vote? Well, Senator, that would be eliciting an opinion from me on whether the dissent or the majority was right in Shelby County, and I can't express a view on that, as I've said, because it would be inconsistent with the judicial rule. 
So Katie, can you talk about the recent history of that issue before the court and what impact Judge Barrett's views may have? So she didn't let us know too much what her views are, just like she handled every other question during the week, rightfully so. She was, by the way, to our listeners, that's not unusual for her not to answer questions. She was following what's called the Ginsburg Rule, which actually came from Justice Ginsburg's confirmation hearing in 1993, where she famously told the senators, you get no previews, no forecasts, no hints of how I'm going to rule. And every nominee since then has taken up that charge of not answering hypotheticals. So she didn't give us much on voting rights, but voting rights has recently been up to the court. In 2013, I think is the most recent, hugely important voting rights case that came up before the Supreme Court, and it's called Shelby County v. Holder. And I think we're seeing the ramifications of the Supreme Court's decision as we speak in the 2020 election. But what happened in Shelby County v. Holder involved the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which kind of enshrined and protected particularly the black and brown right to vote because it was not protected up until that point fully and arguably still is not. But it it involved two sections of the Voting Rights Act that basically had to do with what are called preclearance procedures, where these areas of the country, counties, regions, states, that had issues with allowing or enabling or preventing black and brown voters, basically had to check the box and and couldn't change their voting procedures without getting approval and getting preclearance. So they couldn't add an, a voter ID requirement or some sort of registration change or shut down a number of polling locations without getting preclearance approval. What the Shelby County decision did in 2013 before the Supreme Court is basically gutted that preclearance requirement. So all of these jurisdictions that had problems before and that were problematic and enacted problematic hindrances to the polls for people, Americans, that had the right to vote, no longer had to get preclearance and they could do whatever they wanted. They could shut down polls. They could add voter ID laws. And that started to happen. And that's happening even now, and I think some of the long lines we're seeing is related to that. And so in that opinion, Justice Roberts wrote the majority. And he said, look, we don't need this anymore because the Civil Rights Act has done its job. It has protected the right to vote. People are voting more than they ever have before. We don't need it because it's working. The Voting Rights Act and the old decision and the preclearance requirement is, quote, based on 40-year-old facts having no logical relationship to the present day. The dissenter in that case, and it's one of her greatest dissents she's ever written, was Justice Ginsburg. And she said, getting rid of preclearance requirements when they are working, when they're protecting the right to vote, is like getting rid of your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Mm. And we had Stacey Abrams on earlier this year, and she pointed to that exact line from that opinion in her work in protecting the right to vote and fortifying the right to vote in states like Georgia, where we've seen issues with with protecting the right to vote. So that case is incredibly critical, and we don't know what a Justice Barrett would do to flip or change that model. And I'm not even sure that she would do much because Roberts was already in the majority and gutting Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So it's hard to see that she would she would really move the ball at all. That's so interesting. And you brought up Georgia. I know that's your home state. There were 11-hour lines there, people waiting in line 11 hours to vote. Here in Tennessee, where I am in Nashville, you know, my husband waited 90 minutes. The early vote is out. But, you know, that 11-hour line is is really 
telling. And a lot of people are saying that's part of this voter suppression as well. And there's a lot to unpack there. I don't know if you've you've read a lot about Georgia, if you want to get into that. But yeah, no, it's it's bonkers. I can't name for you all the jurisdictions that are covered under that section of the Voting Rights Act, so I don't want to get into saying which ones are directly related, but I think an 11-hour wait in America period is a problem. Right. So I want to move on to something else that was brought up at the hearing, and one bit of controversy was when Judge Barrett used the term sexual preference. Let's listen. I do want to be clear that I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not ever discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. So she faced criticism for that and responded later in the day to Senator Hirono, and I want to be sure we listen to that as well. I certainly didn't mean and, you know, would never mean to use a term that would cause any offense in the LGBTQ community. So if I did, I greatly apologize for that. I simply meant to be referring to Obergefell's holding with respect to same-sex marriage. Let's break this down legally because Jim Obergefell, who Judge Barrett cited by name and was the plaintiff in the landmark case, said he was still disturbed by this exchange. Legally, what impact does one viewing sexual orientation as a choice have on their standing in the eyes of the law? So legally speaking, the reason why Obergefell, the case itself, and Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the opinion in that case, upheld the right for same-sex couples to marry was because they classified being gay as an immutable characteristic, immutable, not a preference, not a choice. He said in the opinion, psychiatrists and others recognized that sexual orientation is both a normal expression of human sexuality and immutable. And that word immutable has a lot of power in the law because it triggers a heightened scrutiny when we're looking at laws that discriminate against people of the same sex that want to marry each other. If it is an immutable characteristic like race or gender, and even gender has its own can of worms in the law— That's what triggers heightened scrutiny from the court under the law and makes it much easier to strike laws down that are discriminatory and uphold laws that reinforce those immutable characteristics. So that's why it's important. From a personal perspective, using the term sexual preference is an outdated term. And I'm not sure that many people in the room even grasped that when she said it. And I think that speaks to the age of the people in the room, and and perhaps even the experience of the people in the room. But legally speaking, when Anthony Kennedy called sexual orientation immutable, that just opened the door. And I'm not sure that she's on the same page of viewing sexual orientation as immutable. And so in a case similar to Obergefell that comes up, and she recognized, she said herself, Obergefell is not a super precedent. It seems to me that she would view sexual orientation as more of a preference than an immutable characteristic. So there could be a, a reason people are still talking about this because they're, it's not clear how she feels about it. Yeah. And you actually just reminded me people are still talking about it because there was a case that came up to the Supreme Court or they tried to get granted a couple weeks ago and the, the Supreme Court decided not to take it. But in a, a statement agreeing with not to take it, Justices Clarence Thomas and Alito 
wrote separately. And that's that doesn't happen often when the court's just issuing orders. They wrote separately to basically call Obergefell a legal abomination and say that they need to deal with it in the law and that it is a wrong the court created that only the court itself can write. So at least two justices harbor animus towards that decision and have done so and put pen to paper on it. Mm, so interesting. So another moment that got a lot of attention for Democrats was when Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island had his presentation, this follow the money presentation. Let's take a listen to that. I guess the reason that I want to do this is because people who are watching this need to understand that this small hearing room and the little TV box that you're looking at, the little screen that you're looking at, are a little bit like the uh, frame of of a puppet theater. And if you only look at what's going on in the puppet theater, you're not going to understand the whole story. You're not going to understand the real dynamic of what is going on here. And you're certainly not going to understand forces outside of this room who are pulling strings and pushing sticks and causing the puppet theater to react. So first, let me say, why do I think outside forces are here pulling strings. Well, part of it is behavior. We have uh, colleagues here who supported you, this nominee, before there was a nominee. That's a little unusual. We have some very awkward 180s from colleagues. Mr. Chairman, you figure in this. Our leader said back when it was Garland versus uh, Gorsuch, That of course, of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction. Of course, of course, said Mitch McConnell. That's long gone. Senator Grassley said the American people shouldn't be denied a voice. That's long gone. Senator Cruz said you don't do this in an election year. That's long gone. And our chairman made his famous hold the tape promise if an opening comes, In the last year of President Trump's term, we'll wait till the next election. That's gone too. So there is a lot of hard-to-explain hypocrisy and rush taking place right now. And my experience around politics is that when you find hypocrisy in the daylight, look for power in the shadows. Now, people may say, well, what does all this matter? This is a political parlor game. It's no big deal. Well, there's some pretty high stakes here that we've been talking about uh, here on on our side. And I'll tell you three of them right here. Roe versus Wade, Obergefell, and the Obamacare cases. Here's how the Washington Post summed it up. This is a conservative activist behind the scenes campaign to remake the nation's courts. And it's a $250 million dark money operation. $250 million is a lot of money to spend if you're not getting anything for it. So that raises the question, what are they getting for it? So when I watched this exchange, something that really struck me was the Federalist Society. Can you just explain to us what the Federalist Society is, how it operates, and if it does hold all the power that Senator Whitehouse laid out during the hearing? Yes, but let me do so with two caveats. One, I am not a Federalist Society member or expert. 
But two, I have also, like, I recently sat on a panel for students, the Student Federalist Society at the University of Texas Law School. So they, they have a lot of wide-ranging events of which I have sat on panels for. So with, with those two caveats, some explanation, the, the Federalist Society is this group of conservatives, including conservative legal scholars and libertarians, who advocate and want to advance the agenda of textualism and originalism as an approach to interpreting our Constitution. It came about in the 1980s, and it is, to answer your third question, it is hugely powerful. Textualism and originalism is a method of saying, you know, you only look at the text of the words that are before you and nothing outside that. And originalism is slightly different, and it's looking at the original meaning and the original context and the original words of a document when you're interpreting it. So you go back to 1791 and try and understand what the law would have been in 1791 and apply it to modern circumstances. That gets a little tricky, especially when you're dealing with technology. So justices have had to compare like a constable knocking on your door when they're talking about GPS tracking devices. What's the equivalent, you know, like a tiny constable in the back seat? And that's literally in a Supreme Court opinion. Justice Alito wrote it, kind of mocking Justice Scalia. But it's originalism is trying to do that, trying to go back to the founding and apply what was happening then to what's happening now. The Federalist Society are huge proponents of that. Leonard Leo, who's the co-chairman of the Federalist Society, has a hugely critical role in selecting judges, Article Three judges for the Trump administration. Every judge or nearly every judge, I think, is a member of the Federalist Society or has ties to the Federalist Society. They have ties to, I believe, five of the current justices. And Justice Clarence Thomas's wife has strong ties to both Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society. So it's deeply entrenched in Washington politics, in conservative legal circles. It has a great deal of sway with conservative administrations, not just Trump's, Bush's too, and going back to the 1980s. And it really just helps them push this agenda and this idea of textualism, originalism, conservative legal scholars forward. Yeah. So when he said follow the money, what was he trying to imply there? Just the funding for the Federalist Society and then, you know, groups and organizations that also have to do with the Federalist Society. Justice Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, founded this group called Liberty Central. It's a 501c4, and its purpose is to promote civic discourse, I think. But they received in their first year, I think, one or two million dollars in an undisclosed donors. And I think that's what Senator Whitehouse would call dark money. And Leonard Leo is also an officer on Liberty Central. So like it's kind of all woven together. I think that's what White House was suggesting. But I am not an expert on on all of the dark money or the money or the funding, so I don't want to go too far here, but that's that's generally what White House was saying. Although I will say he was the only one that used all of his time to give a presentation and not ask her a single question on the first day, <laughs> which was an interesting tactic. So the past two nominees to the Supreme Court have seen some interesting pushback from academics and colleagues in some cases through open letters. Judge Kavanaugh saw this during his confirmation as 2,400 law professors signed an open letter urging senators to reject his nomination after he testified. Separately, more than 5,000 lawyers, as well as 88 of Judge Barrett's former Notre Dame colleagues where she taught law, signed open letters asking her to call for an immediate halt to the nomination process until after the November election. For Judge Barrett, the Notre Dame colleagues gave three reasons. First, voting for the next president is already underway. 
They cited data indicating that more than 7 million Americans have already voted. Their second reason was the late Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish was that her seat on the court remain open until a new president was installed. And lastly, they said this was a treacherous moment in the United States. Our politics are consumed by polarization, mistrust, and fevered conspiracy theories, essentially asking her to preserve the integrity of the Supreme Court itself. What do you make of these letters generally? And is this normal during a nomination process? Do these letters even matter? Okay, so all three of those questions. It is not normal if you're looking at history since we've started these types of confirmation hearings, which is around 1955, the more active back and forth questioning. Um, And usually Supreme Court justices are confirmed in a bipartisan vote. But increasingly lately, they are not as a part of our partisan politics of the modern era. Obviously, Justice Kavanaugh's was not bipartisan, and even Gorsuch didn't get as many votes. Justice Ginsburg was confirmed 96 to 3. She still had three senators that voted against her. So it is not normal taking the long view. It is normal taking the short and more recent view. Do the letters even matter? No. Again, to use Senator Cory Booker's words, the goose is cooked. Mm -hmm. Nothing is really going to change unless there's some late-breaking news akin to what happened with Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Clarence Thomas. Unless something like that happens, nothing matters. And and just a note on the whole process generally, I know there's this is a, a political hot potato. Everyone has strong opinions on both sides. But I will say the right is arguing Look, elections have consequences. Using Justice Ginsburg's words, you are president for all four years. Even though an election has started, the president is still the president until January. And it's his right, if not his obligation, to fill this seat. And I I think this hyper-partisan political process that's happening around the court, and we saw it happen with Gorsuch because Gorsuch took over the seat that Judge Garland was nominated for, right? The Obama administration tried to fill that seat. Senator McConnell wouldn't let them, held it over for 10 months, and then President Trump got to nominate someone. So that was political. Judge Kavanaugh was political because he was a strong conservative and filling Justice Kennedy's seat, who had been a bit of a swing vote. And then all of the stuff that happened with Kavanaugh's nomination that made it hugely political. And now Amy Coney Barrett is also hugely political because she's filling a staunchly liberal justice's seat. And it's happening for the first time in the history of our country. A confirmation will happen this close one week before the election, which has never happened before. And I think those three hyperpartisan, hyperpolitical moments will start to peel back these fortified layers around the court that have kept Americans believing that it is not a political body. And it's not in the traditional sense that we understand the other two political branches, but a lot of these actors were political. You know, you, they worked on Bush v. Gore. Justice Kavanaugh worked in the Bush administration, and Kagan worked in the Obama administration. And they have been political actors, and it's not like that stops all of a sudden. And I just think it's actually an encouraging thing for the public to start to have a better understanding and more transparency about the court and its members. It's not happening in the prettiest of ways, but politics never does. Yeah. Ain't that the truth, right? I want to follow up on Justice Ginsburg. Uh, You were one of the very few people I know who met Justice Ginsburg when you were learning from one of your greatest mentors, Nina Totenberg of NPR. Do you think Justice Ginsburg's dying wish has any effect on this nomination? 
I think it has zero effect on the nomination. I think the only effect it has generally is that it gave Democrats a talking point to say, you know, how dare you do this? This was her dying wish. And I suspect that she knew that. I don't know for sure. And I had I have only had dinner with her a couple of times, and that was a wonderful experience. And I feel very lucky to have been able to do that. But I think it made no difference whatsoever. We're already at a point where everything is so divided that it made no difference. Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting from the journalism standpoint that Nina Totenberg went back and confirmed this quote. This was something that her granddaughter, I believe, right, had she had told her granddaughter. So Nina is one of the most respected reporters just generally, but especially covering the Supreme Court. So it's interesting definitely to hear from you as you've met both women and uh, worked with Nina so closely as well. So thank you for sharing that. She is a consummate professional. And finally, final question, Katie. Are you are you ready? Yes. The final question. I'm ready for this <laughs> exam, this oral exam to be over. I feel like I'm giving oral argument at the Supreme Court. Although this is not nearly as hard. Don't get me wrong. And that's like the hardest job in the world. Finally, I want to ask you, the hearings ended on a bipartisan note with a statement from Senator Feinstein, which drew sharp criticism for many in her own party. Let's take a listen to that. Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank you. Uh, this has been one of the best set of hearings that I've participated in. And I want to thank you for your fairness and the opportunity of going back and forth. It leaves one with a lot of hopes, a lot of questions, and even some ideas, perhaps some good bipartisan legislation thank we you. can put together to make this great country even better. So thank you thank so you. much for your leadership. Well, one, that means a lot to me. And, and I know we have very different views about the judge and whether we should be doing this or not. Senator Feinstein, you're a joy to work with. And I just want to note something we can't show on a podcast, but went quite viral is the Graham Feinstein hug after the hearing. It wasn't that long ago that such a statement by a ranking member about the chair of the committee, maybe not the hug, would have been standard operating procedure in any Senate hearing. What does it say about this nomination and this moment in American politics that it became so controversial? It is reflective of the entire process that has become hyper-partisan, hyper-political, and perhaps even more so because we are three weeks before an election. You know, a lot of those senators, eight on the Senate Judiciary Committee are up for re-election. They would much rather be at home on the campaign trail. And so they turned the room into their campaign trail and made it all about politics. Not that it isn't always about politics. I think it's just a continuation of this hyper-politicization that we're going to keep seeing. But I will say for the the comments about Senator Feinstein, believe about her what you will, but I think she is a woman that is made of a similar mold as Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and from a similar time, although the two of them did very different jobs and at different times in their lives. But Justice Ginsburg said famously when asked if she was going to step down during the Obama administration, she said no. As long as I can continue to do the job at full steam, I will be here. And up until a month ago, by all accounts, she was continuing to do the job at full steam, even with multiple cancer diagnoses over her life. And she was 87 years old. And Senator Feinstein is 87 years old. And I suspect if you asked her, she would also say, as long as I can continue to do the job at full steam, 
I will be here. Now, people can debate what full steam looks like and what full steam is and if they agree with her full steam and that's what elections are about. Yeah. And I think that just makes me think of RBG and her plank. Like she could hold a plank longer than I could and I'm a third of her age, right? Definitely. Maybe half an age. Yeah. So yeah, she definitely uh, kept going. That, That documentary was amazing that they did with her. So yeah. All right. So you promised that was the last question. I am... You can't see me, but I'm getting out of the hot seat now. So, all right, I'm going to turn it back on you for the last few minutes at least and ask you a couple of questions. (laughs) Don't worry, you don't have to answer with legal doctrine. Since it's been a big week in journalism, (laughs) the intersection between social media and politics, let's pull on a little bit of what we talked about last week. So first on Wednesday— The New York Post ran this exclusive about some alleged emails that may or may not have been from or about Hunter Biden. The story was controversial from the start, given that the Post cited both Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani as their two sources. But what happened next on Twitter and Facebook was definitely unprecedented. We haven't seen that happen yet. So talk a little bit about what happened and how it's different from what happened in the 2016 campaign. So I'm going to break this down as I would do with any news article that I'm trying to understand if it's true or not. So I tell my students, pause before you post. Many people saw this New York Post article and instantly retweeted it and reposted it. And that was a huge, huge, huge mistake. We've got to be better than that. This is how misinformation goes viral. I mean, we just keep seeing it over and over again. So when I saw the story, I first thought, what is the source I'm reading right now? And I've been a journalist for a long time, so I know the New York Post is a tabloid. That's a red flag. This is something I know I should dig deeper on, given how tabloids rely on clickbait. Clickbait's how the New York Post makes money. They thrive off these sensational stories. So my healthy skepticism tells me to really check it out. I also know the New York Post is owned by Rupert Murdoch. That's another red flag. Look into Murdoch's role into the company. Does he have editorial say? Yes, he does. Also, is he known to choose sides politically? Yes, he is. Not just with the New York Post, but with other publications he owns as well. And I think that's really, really important. Also, the New York Post on its own website calls itself, quote, a provocative news brand that breaks big stories and sets the agenda and offers engaging, fun, and addictive content to the country and the world. This took me like a few minutes to Google. You don't have to be a professional media expert to just do a little digging and see what you're reading. Look at the source. As for Facebook and Twitter, their actions just really amplified this story, Katie. They're still trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube in terms of how to regulate misinformation from spreading. It's literally a hot mess. And it's a series of unfortunate events that happened right before a presidential election. And I just, I fear we're just going to keep seeing this over and over in terms of Who do we trust? What are these sources? And people not thinking through before they instantly repost or retweet. And then the social media companies not knowing what to do when things are not necessarily trustworthy. I mean, you mentioned the two sources. That's another red flag that immediately I was like, hmm, okay, let me read a little deeper. So I think that kind of just that lesson of knowing red flags, healthy skepticism, Should I repost this? Should I believe this? You've got to just engage that critical thinking. And I think on social media, we tend to lose that. So there was also a controversy with the debate town hall issue. So as a journalist, tell us about what happened there and how that played out 
And may I also just commend Savannah Guthrie for a moment because she did a really good job. But anyway. (laughs) I I think she did a great job too. So the second presidential debate was canceled. And I, you know, this is why this all came about. So pretty soon after the debate cancellation, former Vice President Biden committed to a town hall with ABC News. And days later, NBC News announced they would air a town hall with President Trump on the same night. And at the same time as ABC News is when NBC News said, we'll do this. So same programming, same time. And there was a lot of hubbub about ABC versus NBC. But I think bigger picture, this was supposed to be a debate night, meaning we could hear from both candidates on the same stage. And a lot of people thought scheduling these events at the same time was a disservice to the public. You had to choose who to turn into. I think that was unfortunate, and it was really unfortunate they scheduled it at the same time. Regardless, this is a digital world we're in. So you can go back and watch both in full. And that's what I did. I don't know what you did, Katie, but that's what I did. That is what I did. Yeah. So you can go to NBC, ABC. You can go to YouTube. You can see the full versions of these town halls. Um, You can see both events in real time. And I think that's really important to note that now that we're past that big ABC versus NBC, what did the the companies do. I think the bigger picture is as a voter and as your civic duty, you should tune into these events in full. And we have the opportunity to do that. Thankfully, they did post them in full on their websites and on YouTube. Moral of the story, go do your homework, (laughs) go watch both now that you can. But yes, it, it was unfortunate. And I hope the networks don't repeat that just for the public's sake. So I know you're a journalist and you might not be able to tell us here, but early word is that the Biden campaign is requiring a negative test from President Trump for next Thursday. And there's just initial pushback on that. What are the odds on a debate actually happening at Belmont on Thursday? <laughs> yeah, I can't really get into the third debate, but I think the the commission sets the rules for the the testing. So I think that's really important to note. So the commission said that both candidates have to test negative. And the commission is this bipartisan group that has been in charge of these debates for decades. So um, it's really important to kind of understand their role. The third debate is, you know, being hosted at my university, which is why I can't talk about it too much. But I honestly don't even know that much because that commission runs everything. We're just the host site. So but I, I think it's important to know the rules. The commission sets the rules that the negative test it has to be for both candidates. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, both candidates follow it this time, although we'll see what happens. But I know you have a lot of work to do to get ready for that this week at Belmont. We wish you the best of luck and thank you for joining us. Yeah, I have to say campus is crazy right now. There are no tents doubt. everywhere. There's right. <laughs> everything is laid out. So uh, I'm there quite a bit and I'll be there on uh, debate day, debate night. So we are... We are definitely pushing forward. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And thanks for letting me uh, put you on the hot seat. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to happen again. (laughs) (laughs) Once in a lifetime. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.